The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Our reading this morning comes from the book of John, chapter 9, verses 13 to 41. They brought, the Pharisee, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, how can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he is of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore his parents said, he is of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And they cast him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, and who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? And Jesus said to him, you have seen him and it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world that those who do not see may see, and those who see may become blind. Some of the Pharisees never heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt, but now that you say we see, your guilt remains. This is the word of the Lord. Will you give God praise for the reading of his word? Everybody can't read his word and give thanks. And we 
are incredibly grateful to be here. Sometimes when I'm, I, I hadn't been up here in a while, <clears throat> and I, you know, last time I was supposed to be up here was Easter, and I, my whole family got COVID. <clears throat> and uh, I just know that as we are trying to orient our minds around what we're doing and how we come into worship, a lot of times it's, I got to get myself together. So if you don't mind, can we just take a moment just to give God praise? If you want to do it audibly, if you want to stand to your feet, but I just need 15 seconds to orient my mind and my heart around how God is going to speak to us this morning. Father, we love you and we thank you so much for your wonderful mercy and grace and how good you've been to us, Lord. You always keep us, Lord Jesus, when we're going through hard times, hearing difficult times like Silas Jackson and those things. Lord, it is hard to bear those burdens. But Lord, you let us know that you bear every single thing on the cross, everything that plagues us and weighs us down and coming into worship. God, we ought to give it to you. And so, Lord, I pray everything that's on my heart that's distracting my thinking, everything that's on my mind, Lord Jesus, that's causing me not to think about how to shepherd and care for your people. I pray, God, that you speak through me, Lord Jesus. God, that you manifest yourself to your people, that they don't hear Michael Davis, but they hear you. You, Lord. And Father, I pray every single issue, every single concern, Lord, I pray that it is just cast unto you. All of the cares, Lord Jesus. Every situation that people are feeling hurt and broken in marriage or hurt and broken in relationship, Lord, the way that our country is developing and everything around us, so much chaos. Every time we turn on the news, there's something else going on. But God, you let us know that you're in control. And Lord, I, I I need to believe that now, God. I need to believe it now. I need your people to believe it now, Lord. And Father, we cry out to you, hallelujah, holy. We cry out to you, Lord Jesus, Maranatha, because we need you to come. We need your presence in this place. We need you to fill this room, God. We need the spirit that resides into us to move our bodies, to move our mouths, to move our feet, God. I need you, Jesus. Every minute, Lord Jesus, there is not a day, there's not a time, there is nothing, Lord God, that I don't need, Lord. That is not you, Father. Oh, God, we cry out to you because we know, Father, that you can answer prayers. You incline your ear. Hear us now, Father. Hear us now, God, as we praise you. We glorify your name. Oh, hallelujah, Jesus. In your mercies, and by your grace, you continue to remind us that you're our strength. You're our firm foundation when all other ground is sinking sand. Father, you are a firm foundation. When every aspect of our lives tells us not to believe, you remind us that you're worth believing. Even when we can't see it, Lord Jesus, you are worth believing. Even, God, when we feel alone and isolated, when we feel as if nobody cares about us, Father, you let us know you're worth believing. 
And when we look in the mirror every single time and we're dealing with issues with our bodies or we're dealing with issues with how we are dealing, feeling mentally, you remind us that we have inherent dignity, worth, and value because you created us. So help us in this moment now to be image bearers that are not listening to me lecture, but that we continue to worship you by the way that we hear, by the way we respond to your word. I pray, Lord Jesus, that this is not an exercise or an experiment, but Lord, that we feel your presence and sense you being with us. Lord, we bring all of these things to you, our King, our Lord. We pray this in the precious name of Jesus Christ. All God's people say together, amen, amen. Will you give God a hand praise? Hallelujah. <clears throat> As you already heard our scripture reading, the idea that uh, uh, Wayne already set us up last week. And what I want to do is continue to carry out what Wayne did in the sense in which he focused on how the blind beggar who was healed was healed because of the one that was sent. The blind beggar was healed because of the one that was sent, that being Jesus Christ. And I want to emphasize that Jesus reveals himself, he reveals his identity through signs and wonders so that we will know and proclaim him, the one that was sent. But see, a lot of times we have all fell into believing that seeing is believing. A lot of times we, we ourselves uh, fall into this idea or notion that if I can see it, Lord, then I know you didn't did it. Lord, I just need to see you working things out. But God doesn't work according to our wills. And we see this throughout the narrative. God works according to his will. And therefore, we too struggle at times to profess the very one that we ought to proclaim and know primarily because we haven't seen what he is doing. And that's hard for us. And it's hard for the readers as well because the author, John, is writing to a people. We always want to keep that in mind. And we always want to keep in mind the fact that the purpose of the book is in John 20 and 30 where it says, Jesus, now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So it's clear that Jesus did far more than we can ever think or imagine that's not written down, but eyewitness accounts have uh, actually seen this, and he's done it in front of his disciples. And so John says, but these are written so, uh, written so that you may believe, the readers, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. Remember, Jesus' last name is not Christ. He is the Christ. He is the anointed one. He is the Messiah. He is Yahweh. He is the one to come. We want to emphasize that he is the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name. So, beloved, John's original writer, readers were actually struggling to believe because they were facing persecution. The persecution existed out of the fact that they not only were not supposed to believe in Jesus or proclaim that they believe in Jesus, but also that they would be excommunicated from the synagogue. 
that they would not be able to worship, which was the very way that they lived their life. It was surrounded around worship. It was surrounded around sacrificing, giving themselves, whether that be to idols or whether that be to Jesus Christ himself. And so now, them knowing and proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ, what leads them, it leads them in a circumstance of danger. I mean, it should let us know that this context is what drives this narrative, but it also has present implications for where we are today. And so the narrative I want to break down, not in points, but in scenes. Scene one, we, we will see this. We, we must see this because what happens a lot of times, we declare something. Jesus has already done something. So I want you to hear that. He's revealed himself by his signs and wonders through his divinity. Therefore, we must proclaim him, but we also must do this. We see it in scene one. We must be certain of the one we proclaim. And then scene two, which is verses 18 through 23, we must count the cost of the one we're following, which is Christ. Scene three, we, we, call, we are called to be worshipers and witnesses of God, not merely thinkers of God. That's verses 24 through 34. And scene four, we are to live free from all guilt. That's verses 35 through 41. Now, y'all saying, we, we, we ain't going to be here all, all morning. <clears throat> I'm going to let God work, okay? You, you know, I'm going to let the Lord work. But no, we, I, we broke it down that way so that we can see what is happening throughout the narrative. So when we get to scene one, and it's telling us something, that we must be certain, sure of our proclamation. How many of y'all are devoted to your favorite football team, devoted to your fantasy football team, a baseball team, or college team? How many of you are devoted to the, the, the HD, HGTV network or to certain foods, barbecue, whatever you want? How many of you are devoted to certain grilling forms? How many, you know, Sergi hold that idol in his heart. How many of y'all devoted to... Old Miss, you know, some people hold those idols in their hearts as well. How many of you are devoted to your finances, to your career? To, how many of you devoted to yourself? And how many things are you devoted to? I want you to think about that. What are you devoted to? Is it looking good? Is it keeping yourself together? Is it making sure that you mask yourself? Because the very thing that you devote yourself to is the very thing that you will proclaim. The very thing that you devote yourself to is the very thing that you will proclaim. The reason I know it, because sometimes it's in the apparel that we wear. It's the sticker on the back of the car to tell us what beach we've gone to or what mountain we've traveled to. It's the license plate that tells us what we're donating to or giving ourselves to. It's the badges or the uniforms that we wear, that we're proclaiming where we work and how we're proud of where we work. Some people say, I ain't proud of working at Church's Chicken. I understand. If we all proclaim what we then are devoted to. That being the case, we have to ask ourselves, how sure are you of what you proclaim? See, when we get to here and we ask ourselves, what, what, what does it mean to be certain of that proclamation? I, I want to say the answer to that is to know the person and the work of Jesus Christ. But see, the blind beggar didn't necessarily know 
who Jesus actually was in his divinity. So then when we set this up and we look at where the Pharisees are, the Pharisees, remember, they are legal experts. So a lot of times when we think about the Pharisees, sometimes we can talk about them so generally, not understanding that they, they actually were the law keepers. They were actually individuals who studied the Bible so much and the law of the Bible so much that they helped interpret it actually what was going on in society. So because of what was going on in society, what they did was they actually would tell people how they would, ought to, how they would view their lives as Jewish individuals and how they would practice how they would live as Christians or believers, not necessarily Christians, believers, because they were not Christians. We too today also, we are governed like that to some extent. That's why you have pastors, spiritual leaders in your life. But nobody's saying you're an expert because the issue with the Pharisees was the fact that Jesus said, I come to do what? Fulfill the law. So the new teachings that they never heard, they struggled with. The issues that Jesus addressed, they struggled with. And so even when it came to the blind beggar, they struggled. Because when the neighbors in the community brought the blind beggar before the Pharisees, the question that they ask is, who healed this man? And why would he do it on a Sabbath day? Jesus did nothing wrong with healing on the Sabbath. There was no rule. There was no law. There was nothing in order for him to make the excuse as to why he could, he could not heal on the Sabbath. Jesus was perfectly fine because not only is he God, but he is the, and the one that developed and fulfilled the law. But even when they created 39 more rules to add to the law, Jesus still did not work outside of that. That 39th, one of those 39 rules was the fact that they, they felt when he used clay, he was needling. He was actually making, bending down, working to put clay on his eyes to, uh, to heal him. They found that that was working, right? These, this practice was not abnormal because even pagans would use this practice. But here's what we find with the, where, where this is interesting for us to take point in verses 13 through 17, where we see that he says, now, somebody worship him. Now it was on the Sabbath when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. That was their issue. So the Pharisees again asked him how, had, um, how he received, had received his sight. And he said to them, he put mud on my eyes. And I washed and I see. The Pharisee said, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And the other said, how, how, can, how can a man who is a sinner do such a, do such a sign? So the issue here is with the law, not the sign. Who prophesied that Jesus would do signs? In the Old Testament, you see through the prophet Joel that he says that you will see miracles, signs, and wonders through the work of Jesus Christ. And so it was not that they did not expect signs, but what they were holding to, what they created and developed. Now, the applications or the implications for us to be sure in our proclamation, how many different things do we add to our Bible? How many things do we add to our Christian life? that then makes it make certain hurdles and boundaries, place things so that then people are distracted from the very person that is doing the work, and that is Jesus Christ. 
that's what we see here. So the blind beggar being honest, he says, he says in uh, verse 17, he says, so, so what do you say? Uh, so they say, so, uh, so they said again to the blind man, what do you say about him since he opened your eyes? He's, he's a prophet. He still does not declare that he's from God, that he's the son of God, that he's the Christ or the Messiah. He's still in this cross-examination understanding what has happened to him in the moment. And you remember who the blind beggar also, or the beggar that was also at the temple when Peter and, uh, and the disciples walked by. This was not abnormal for beggars to be by the church. Here's one of the things that I also want us to recognize that it is good that homeless people, poor people, those that are hurt, sick, abused, and afflicted, outcasts, find their refuge right in front of the door of the church. Not just in the door, at the door of the church, but in the seats of our sanctuary. We should never close the door. We should never pass by and feel okay when we see people hurting, visible hurt, and we do nothing about it. Beloved, that, that, that's what Jesus is teaching us as we see him do healing. We cannot do the signs that he does, but you know what we can do. Be image bearers that carry forth the one that we proclaim. So the certainty and the surety of our proclamation is not by the fact that we merely speak words, but it's also been action, deed, by the way that we work these things out. If we fight only to be doctrinally right, if we fight only to be right by knowledge, then we fight for the wrong proclamation. If we then fight that chains are broken, people, the captive are free, that the blind, yes, indeed see, that the deaf indeed hear, we then proclaim the goodness, the mercy, and the full power of the gospel. You see, we, we, we're dealing with this right now in our society. Well, we all as Christians proclaim what laws and what things that we affirm, and we as Christians consistently proclaim political parties, and we proclaim the surety of where we ought to vote. But I want to declare to you, beloved, that this morning it is not our proclamation merely to proclaim our societal or civil responsibilities, but there is one who gives us wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, the same God that worked with Solomon when he was confused as to what he need to do with the child. It's the same God that gives you the wisdom to know what to do when you are in difficult situations. He's the same God that gives the church wisdom on know how to come alongside of the sick and the afflicted. Why do we need to think about the forgotten ones? Because it is easy to live a life that surely proclaims a Jesus that fits into our box. Oh, it's easy to proclaim a Jesus that only affirms the very things that we desire. But what happens when you find yourself in some difficult situations where people challenge you and where you believe and what you understand? Street evangelism really helps you when you do this. I remember when we used to do street evangelism, it was hard because you would run into several different people who would challenge what you're proclaiming. And that, that challenge, you, you typically felt as if, you know, you, I'm not trying to come against you as an individual. I, I just want to tell you about the one that I know. And I'm so sure of it, there's nothing you will say that will shake me. 
that will change me. I'm so sure of it that my feet won't move off that firm foundation. I'm so sure of it that my mind won't begin to percolate thoughts of doubt, etc., because I will pray against it. Not that they won't come up, but I will pray against every doubt, every lie, and every deceitful thing that the father of lies wants to use. So encountering people who don't know the Lord and they ask you various different questions on why you believe in Jesus and they make things ethnocentric at times with the context I was coming from, it, why you would believe in such a Jesus or why would, you, why would you give your money to the church or haven't you been hurt by the church and haven't you been abused by the church? And I'm like, the church is not who I'm worshiping. I'm not worshiping a preacher. I'm not worshiping the latest psalmist. I'm not worshiping the band. I'm worshiping a God that can speak through any and everything. I've seen him speak or read that he spoke through a donkey. I'm sure that he can speak through any sinner on this earth. This, 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 is, what remind, this is what Jesus helps us to see by using those, as Paul has already mentioned, that are pushed to the margins, weak that are seen as outcasts, that are seen as individuals who are not noble, are not worthy of his spirit, of his love, of his care. It's nothing that we need to earn, beloved. The surety of our proclamation comes by understanding who God is, understanding his grace, his mercy, and allowing that to be the very thing that moves us forward. Beloved, I'm sure that you've heard so many different things, and as we move, you can go to the next scene. As we move, we know that in 18 and 23, I want you to understand that we ought to count the cost of following Jesus. Because as we understand so many different things, when they bring the parents into the situation, there's this idea when, as they're who they know, you, you read it right here in the text. It says, the Jews did not believe that he... Uh, the Jews did not believe that he had been blind and he had received sight until they called the parent, parents of the man who had received sight. And now go down to verse 21. It says, but how, uh, how he now sees, we do not know. This is what the parents are saying. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. So the issue was, we don't know how, this, how our child sees. He's been blind all his life. He, he, he's been struggling with this all. We don't know. But you got to ask yourself the question, why isn't his parents stepping up for him? Because right at the end, what does it say? It says, therefore, the parents says, he's of age, ask him. So why, why if my baby being cross-examined, I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> Look at her. It's going to be a problem. But what the issue was, it wasn't just a problem. They felt, once again, that they would be excommunicated from the synagogues. They were already... Uh, going to be persecuted if they confessed that Jesus was the Christ. And so now he must have been of age according to Jewish law and ritual, which was around uh, 13 to actually proclaim who he knew, being sure of his proclamation. Remember, in Jewish life, they, they made sure that you, their children knew their laws, knew their rituals, knew what they ought to believe in. We should too be doing the same thing. I can go on a tangent on doing that, but I'm not going to do that because I'm, I'm on my time. We, too, need to be doing that as a church. Y'all know how I feel about that collectively. I, I, we got some, some aunties in here, some, some cousins and some uncles, et cetera, that we should all become alongside of one another throughout this time. But what is it, what's important here is to see that their child had a disability. I don't want us to overlook that in the text. 
a lot of times when we look at the text, we can become super observant of the fact that he was healed, but not aware that he's been living a whole life blind throughout this entire time. And the way that he earned money possibly was sitting outside, begging outside of the synagogue, and then bringing his money back home to his parents so that he can, he can live because he couldn't afford to live on his own, nor did he have the capabilities of living on his own. Beloved, how does that have implications for where we are today? There's cost with so many different things in life. First of all, the parents, they struggled because they did not, they did not want to be excommunicated. They did not want to be persecuted, but that's the cost. That's what Matthew 16, 24 through 26 says, that if we bear our cross, what's happening? We will die with him. We will be crucified with him. That, that's, that's just the fact of the matter. That's why it's important to understand our Bibles, because that's being united with God in all things. Because just as much as he suffered, we will suffer. But just as much as he is victorious, beloved, we too will be victorious. But I understand it it was difficult for the parents to get their minds around that. But the question then is, what are the implications for us understanding what disability means in our church today? When we see and, and have come across So many individuals that have suffered from being blind, that have suffered from being deaf, that have suffered from cerebral palsies, suffer from various different implications. Just two weeks ago, I ran into a woman. Her name is Michelle Munger, and she knows Daniel Harris. And there's a tribe of individuals who is trying to get the church to see that the way that we do church is not always effective to the way in which we are caring about those who are not the same as us who are fully can use our hands, that can hear and use our sight, things that we take for granted day in and day out. We have to struggle with those things. Because sometimes we have to be honest. Our music can be too loud or our, we don't have the proper things in place in order for people to understand. So they walk in our church and the thing we're communicating is, I don't know if this is the place to you. That's what we not intending to communicate, but that's, that is what can happen. Every time I see Mike Shaw come and help Daniel Harris take communion, it's a beautiful picture of how we need to come alongside of one another every single time. Beloved, the church has to come alongside of those who are dealing with mental issues and not push them to the, the corner, to the curb. Push them to be outcasts, because I can tell you, having worked with homeless people for years, what I learned is when they come into the shelter, it becomes their home, because their family dismissed them. The family wanted to have nothing to do with them. They called them crazy, and they then live on the margins. If anybody in here, no, I, I could tell you right now, I got some family that they were okay a couple years ago, but they're struggling with schizophrenia. They're struggling with bipolar. They're struggling with so many different things that they're on the brink of being outcast, pushed aside, and marginalized because they can't keep a job, because they can't hold down a family, because nobody is caring for them. I want to emphasize that, beloved, because we see a man that has been healed and has been blind, and people know that he's been blind, but he's cross-examined after he's been healed, and he's been living with a disability which nobody cared about all this entire time. We have to care. 
We have to draw our attention to that, but it means that we ought to count the cost. Thank you, Bruce. And we count those costs by the way that we consistently show care to those who are in our communities that are affected by these disabilities. But the theological question, which Wayne kind of dealt with last week, is when you are born blind, does that mean that you, the fetus was sinful? Does it mean that the womb was sinful? Does it mean that the mother was sinful? I believe the Bible said that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but that it does not mean that there are implications of that due to the fact that you will then suffer. That is your punishment. That's not what the Bible is saying. Actually, what Jesus says is that he uses those weak things in order to what? Prove that he's strong. And so we all have to see ourselves in areas in which we don't have the full capacity, that we don't have our, our things together. We have to then empathize with our disabled community. Scene two, scene three, where we, where we see that we, uh, we ought to understand in 24 through 30, 34 that we, we ought to be, we are called to be worshipers and not just, and, and witnesses and not just merely thinkers of God. You know, Many of y'all heard me mention before, James K. Smith, where he, he talks about you are what you love, and he goes through and philosophically talks about that we, um, through enlightenment, which I believe our system of understanding doctrine and our system of understanding theology has all been informed by the way that we have come around or come through enlightenment. And so Emmanuel Descartes, I mean, uh, Emmanuel Kant, Descartes, et cetera, the way that you, you are, they believe that you are thinking things or you are, uh, uh, you are a being that actually has to rationalize. And that's a lot of times the way we argue with the Bible, the way we enter into apologetics. But I, I think that when you are a worshiper and a witness, what the blind beggar shows us is that it's not merely the fact that that. How to know him intellectually. Because look what 24 says. So for the second time, they called the man because obviously they went to his parents and they said, they asked, interrogated them, and then they came back to him and they called the man <coughs> and he and the blind man and said to him, give glory to God. We know, what do you really know, Pharisees? We know that this man is a sinner, meaning Jesus. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, oh my goodness, one thing I do know that though that I was blind, I now see that they said, they, they said to him, what did, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he essentially said, I didn't told you. I can see I've never been able to, I just didn't told you. Why you want me to tell you again? Because he's a witness. He's a witness as to what has happened to him. Make it clear that your witness is not the same, though, as understanding the gospel. So God can be doing stuff through some sinners, some people that have not fully turned around. That was a part of my testimony. When God saved me 
and I was sitting in the back left of the pew, I just start walking down, crying. I didn't even know why I was crying. I didn't even understand the gospel, but the preacher must have been preaching, and when he did the altar call, I found myself compelled in my heart and my mind to want to come to Jesus. It took three months later for me to turn around fully from all of my sins and give all of my guilt and shame to him and know who he is. So the blind beggar said, I don't know. All I know is he just showed me I can see. I'm trying to figure it out just like y'all should be trying to figure it out. A witness and a worshiper then, when we go to scene four, we see this ties it together a lot more clearly because when they cast him out, Jesus hears that he's been cast out in 35. He says, Jesus heard that he had, uh, they, had, they had cast him out, and having found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, he said, who is that, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, you have seen him, and it is he who speak is speaking to you. I'm right in front of your face. And he said, Lord, I believe. And I worship. And he worshiped. Beloved, look at what he says next. Jesus said, for judgment I came into, the, into this world. That those who do not see, my, see may see. And those who see may become blind. Some, fair, some of the Pharisees near him heard these things and said to him, are we also blind? Jesus said to them, if you were blind, you would have no guilt. But now that you say we see, your guilt remains. Here's the beauty of the gospel. When we go back to Genesis 3, God let us know that all of humanity is cursed. The guilt that he took on the cross, he nailed it there, and he kept it there. It didn't fall off. Nobody pulled it off. Can't nobody take it away. The shame that one feels, can't nobody take that away. Jesus has taken it on. Continue to give it to him. But here's the picture that I want you to see in this scene, that the man finally seen Jesus, although that he could see. That was a different way of seeing He's seen a man, but this time he's seen God. Beloved, that's what makes our proclamation sure. That's what makes us worshipers and witnesses because as soon as he really seen Jesus, he began to worship. That's what it means to count the cost. Although he'd been cross-examined, treated right, living poor, and pushed to the margins, he's the one that can actually see Jesus. And all I want to leave you with this, this morning is as we come to the table, leading to this table, we sang a song that reminded us that there is a fountain that I see. Beloved, that we all should see that's filled with blood that comes from Emmanuel's vein. And, and what it is, what it does is that sinners, the sinners, they plunge beneath it. And what does it do? He loses all of his guilty stains. I like the way Andre Crouch would say it another way. He says, uh, 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 the blood of Jesus he shed for me way, way, way back on Calvary. Beloved, when you come to this table, you got to understand that that blood, it gives you strength. Not, not just for a moment, but for day to day. So you may be struggling right now, but it gives you strength today. 
and, and you may be at your weak point, but tomorrow you're going to have some more strength. That is the blood that gives us strength. But then it says the blood, it doesn't exhaust itself. It, it never loses its power. And sometimes when you find yourself at the highest points of your life, it reaches to the highest mountain. And when, when you find yourself in the valley, in the lowest point, it flows to the lowest valley. And I, if you know it, then say it. Blood, the strength that it has, blood gives you, it gives it to you day after day, and it will never lose its power and keep the people of God until Jesus comes back. And when you hear me say the words of institution, you'll hear me say and repeat what the Bible says, that when we partake of this, we proclaim his death until he comes. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for your mercy and grace and how good you've been to us. We need it. And we ask, Lord Jesus, that you remind us that we are not the individuals that have it all together. But we are people that are entrusted to you. And we are people, Lord, that need to rely on you. And give us, Lord Jesus, that strength by your grace. For we love you, Lord. And we pray these things in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. All God's people said together, amen, amen. Beloved, receive the benediction. May the love of God our Father, fellowship of the Holy Spirit, and the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all now and forevermore. Proclaim his goodness. Go in peace. Amen.